parents, um, I know you've all uh, seen and been heartbroken over the devastation uh, of, for Hurricane Harvey in Texas. And uh, I want us to take a few minutes just to pray this morning. Um, it's been made real personal for me in a few ways. One, I have four very close friends that I uh, went, so, went to seminary with uh, that are pastoring churches in the Houston area been able to touch base with them this week and they're they're fine they're for the most part their their people are fine but they have said you just cannot imagine the devastation that's in that region um, and then just this morning Pam saw on Facebook that um, Grant Flynn that many of you may remember Grant came through here on two different occasions through the military and Grant has been made one of the key leaders for the entire relief effort for the Army in the Houston area. He's overseeing several thousand uh, personnel, and he asked for prayers specifically. So we want to pray for Grant. Um, you may have family there. You may have friends that are there. Um, I would ask you to, to just join with me in prayer. Let me say as well, too, some of you may want to give. Maybe you've already given through other sources, and that's fine if you have, but if you've wanted to give but just didn't know the best way to do it, I can tell you that our denomination has a crisis relief fund, and 100% of the proceeds go to the relief effort. There's no administration cost or anything like that. Plus, it's working with people that we know. So if you'd like to give, uh, you can give uh, through a cash by writing on an envelope for Hurricane Harvey, or you can notate it in your check. Or if you give online, uh, there will be a box there now. They've created a box so that you can give specifically to Hurricane Harvey. If you'd like to do that, just proceed. Um, people are already asking, what can we do beyond give? Can we go? Can we be a part of some kind of relief effort? And I'm quite confident there will be that in time right now. Uh, quite frankly, they don't need a lot of outsiders coming in. They're just trying to get through the most devastating part of this. But I've also heard that they will probably need up to a 1,000 volunteers a day for six months uh, in the wake of this hurricane. So I'm very confident that just as we have in the past, we will have teams organized to go and to help bring relief. If you want uh, to be a part of that, we will make sure you get that information. Would you just bow your heads right now, though, and let's pray. Father, there's... Um, there's a part of us that wishes we could do more right now. We could go and somehow be there hands-on to help meet the needs. But Lord, we know from your word that there is nothing more powerful than prayer. And right now, we want to pray, first of all, for those who've experienced devastating loss, the loss of loved ones, the loss of whole homes, of all property. Uh, folks that right now are wondering how in the world they're going to make it in the future. We pray for them today. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be very present. That you would be working right now to, to, to bring them to a foundation. To plant their feet on a foundation of solid rock that is Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for those who have already built on that foundation, whose lives, though, right now feel like sinking sand or not because their feet are planted firmly on you. And Lord, we pray for the body of Christ in that region. Lord, we pray that this would be a moment where your people could step into this situation, 
where they could be your hands and your feet and your eyes and your, your mouth speaking words of encouragement, seeing needs and responding, just loving by being present. Lord, I pray that in the midst of this devastating loss and all the darkness that surrounds it, that the light of your people, your body, would shine brightly in the midst of it. And that there would be people that, um, whose worlds have been shattered that will one day look back and say, I wouldn't change a thing because that's what led me to put my trust in God. That's what led me to come to you and to seek you for the first time in my life as Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that we will hear thousands of those kinds of testimonies. So we pray for your people. And Lord, we pray that you would show us how we can be of help. Show us how to give. Show us how to serve. And we will follow your lead, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you are our rock. And we praise you as such. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We are in a series that we've called Acts Awakenings. Uh, This is a 12-week series. Uh, We're not looking at the entire book of Acts, but we are jumping into some of the highlights, particularly some of those key places in Scripture where um, God just exposes or opens the eyes of His people to something brand new. Something that uh, has not happened previously. This is one of the most incredible things about the book of Acts is that God is moving in new and fresh ways that uh, just kind of break the mold of anything he's ever done before. Well, we want to learn from that and we want to live in that as well. Uh, We started a few weeks ago by looking at the prelude to awakening. Um, We talked about how Jesus said to those first disciples to wait and pray. To wait and pray. And let me just say, by the way, that um, next Sunday, we will be launching um, our third call to awakening. We've called it prayer week in the past. This time, it's just Sunday through Wednesday. We will be gathering starting next Sunday, every night, Sunday through Wednesday, to pray, to listen to the Lord, uh, to bring some words of encouragement to you. But what we're really doing is coming and we're asking God to do something fresh and new in us right now, in my life, in your life, in our body as a whole. And let me just remind us that for us as well, it starts with waiting and praying. And so this week, starting tomorrow, we will be gathered every morning at 6.30 and at noon. We're asking any of you who will to participate by fasting and praying You can do that with food, or you can do it with whatever the Lord puts on your heart. Uh, You can do it one meal, or you can do it more meals in one. Uh, But we will be gathered here every morning at 6.30 and at noon. To be honest with you, initially we we thought about canceling for tomorrow, for Labor Day. And our prayer folks who've been meeting ever since the last call to awakening, I want you to know there have been a handful of people that have been meeting ever since the last call to awakening every morning, every day at noon. And their response to us was, the Lord doesn't start work, stop working on Labor Day. Why should we stop praying on Labor Day? So there are going to be people here in the morning as well at 6.30. If you've got the day off and want to start your day in prayer, it would be great for you to come and be a part of that. But we'll be here all week long praying, fasting, with expectation that God is going to do something fresh and new in us uh, next week. 
Um, from there, we have the, the story of, of Pentecost, the outpouring of God's Spirit. Uh, following that, Peter stood up, and he preached his very first message, and 3,000 people were saved in a one day. From there, they began to gather together, uh, giving us a picture of what it looks like to be a part of the body of Christ. It's not a solo journey. It's not a lone ranger kind of life. We are called to do life together in the Spirit. And as soon as the Holy Spirit formed the, the body of Christ, the church, they immediately began to gather and do life together. We want to follow that example as well. Let me just say to you, we've been focusing on community all month long, all last month. And uh, if you are not yet involved in a community group or a recovery group or a Sunday morning gathering, if you don't have some place of connection outside of this room, I want to challenge you to find that place of connection. You can drop by the booth any Sunday. Um, you, you can let us know through a communication card, but let us know you need to get connected, and we want to help you do that because that is so much a part of who we are as the people of God. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the events of Acts 3 and 4, and I've entitled this message, Awakened to Boldness. Awakened to Boldness. Peter and John were on their way to the temple, and um, it's interesting that they were going there to pray. Uh, you know, we often forget that these first disciples considered themselves fully to be Jews. Uh, you know, they, they believed that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, but they still very much thought of themselves as Jews. And so they were still doing what Jews did. Every day they went to the temple to pray. And on this occasion, as they passed through the, the gate called Beautiful, there was a man who had been lame from birth. Scripture says that he's been sitting there for some 40 years. The only way he could meet his most basic needs was to beg for money. And so for 40 years, this man has been sitting there essentially every single day begging and asking for money just to meet his basic needs. As Peter and John walked by, and think about this, they would have walked by him many, 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 many times over many years. Uh, we often think somehow that, that you know, we, we read these stories and we think it just happened in that moment. Um, and, 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 and yet they were passing by every day and they saw this same man. But for some reason, on this day, the Lord captured their attention. They turned to him when he asked for money. And you, many of you will remember their response. Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And he reached his hand out. He lifted the man up. The man stood up. He, he realized that his, his ankles and his legs were now strong. He began to dance. He jumped all over the temple courts praising God. It was an incredible miracle. Uh, one of the first miracles that we see coming from the apostles directly in the book of Acts, one of the first specific ones. Well, the, the, by the end of the day, there was so much commotion. By the way, the people came to them, and, and uh, for a few moments, Peter and John were first, first century celebrities. I mean, everybody was crowded around them saying, tell us what you did and how you did it. And so they all came up, and immediately, this is so powerful, immediately Peter completely nipped that in the bud. And he said in verses 12 and 13, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? 
Why do you stare at us if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. And from there, Peter preaches his second sermon. It's very similar, though shorter, to the first. And again, this time, 2,000 people are saved in, in a single day. Well, as soon as the religious establishment heard about what was going on, specifically when they heard that they were preaching that Jesus had been raised from the dead and that they too could be raised from the dead if they were in Christ, the Sadducees and the priests came out in force and looked for an opportunity to shut it down. They, they arrested Peter and John, kept them overnight. The next day, they pulled them before the chief priest. And they brought them in, and and they asked them this question, a very simple question. They said, by what power or what name did you do this? This was Peter's response in verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God has raised from the dead, that this man now stands before you healed. Let's go to that next slide. He is the stone your builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. Now, this is essentially the same message that Peter has now preached twice. He is preaching the same message a third time. But this time he is preaching it to the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Their hearts have hardened and no one gets saved on this sermon. Instead, uh, they, they begin to try to figure out how to handle the situation. Because on the one hand, they cannot allow Peter and John and the other disciples to continue proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord, and particularly that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. On the other hand, th- this man that everybody knew was lame from birth for 40 years has not been able to walk, is now dancing around the temple. If they try to shut it down and and, and somehow cast doubt on what just happened, they know they're going to have a revolt on their hands. So they've got this dilemma. And what they finally conclude to do is to bring them back in and to 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 say to Peter and John in the strongest of terms, do not speak any longer of this man named Jesus. I want to remind you of Peter's response in verses 18 through 20. Then they called them in again. They commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, Peter is saying to them, judge us however you will, punish us however you will, but we will not stop speaking about Jesus Christ, what we have seen in him, what we have heard from him. And let me tell you, they didn't. They never stopped talking about Jesus until each one of them gave their lives as martyrs for the Christian gospel. One of the most remarkable features of the book of Acts 
is the, uh, is the, the picture it gives us of the dramatic transformation that took place in the lives of the disciples immediately following the outpouring of God's Spirit at Pentecost. At Pentecost. And one of the most remarkable features of that transformation was the boldness that came into Peter and the other disciples. Can I just remind you where they were just weeks before this? I mean, just weeks before this event takes place. They are all huddled, scared out of their minds because Jesus has been arrested and it now looks very clearly that he's going to be crucified. Peter is so afraid, he won't even acknowledge that he knows Jesus. Three times he denies that he's ever been with Jesus. Three times. In in the days following the crucifixion, the disciples are are hiding out of public sight, just trying to stay clear of anyone who might associate them with Jesus. But following Pentecost, following resurrection and then Pentecost, What we see is a complete transformation of these same men. And I want to remind you who they were prior to that. I want to remind you that these men uh, were, were not just those men that were afraid in those days, but these were ordinary fishermen. Almost all of Jesus' disciples were just fishermen or, or of that ilk from the area of Galilee. Uh, one commentator has reminded us that people who came from Galilee in those days were like hillbillies in our day. These were people who were mostly illiterate. They were not trained. They were ordinary people who had no special skills. That's exactly what we hear the religious leaders saying in Acts 4.8 when we hear these words. I mean, 4.13 actually. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. They were astonished. Well, they may have been ordinary men, but God was doing some incredibly extraordinary things through them. Amen? But how did this happen? I mean, what is the secret of this boldness that they now found uh, as witnesses of Jesus Christ? Well... Let me share with you three things very quickly. The first one is this. I think one of the things that stands out to me most in these two chapters is that these were men who were captivated with Jesus. They were captivated with Jesus. Uh, God does a miracle through them. People all begin to look at them, and the first thing they do is, don't look at us. We're not the answer. There's nothing special about us. It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. When the, uh, when the chief priests and the, 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 the Sadducees begin to question them, everything they say puts the focus on Jesus over and over again. And this is a very, very simple insight, but let me just say it this way. When you're captivated with Jesus, guess what you can't be captivated with? You. Your image, your reputation, what people think of you, or what people might do to you. When you are captivated with Jesus, your eyes aren't on you, and you are free. You are liberated from the fear of people-pleasing, or from the fear of being rejected, or from the fear of whatever it is that tends to hold us back. One of the keys to their boldness is that they had been set free and were completely unrestrained 
because they were captivated with Jesus. Can I just tell you that of all the people I've known in, in, in my years of ministry, those that God seemed to use in the most profound ways are all people who were captivated with Jesus. Now, we, we've got a, a former bishop of our denomination. He's a man that I've had the privilege of getting to know even deeper uh, since he retired. And one of the things that has always stood out to me about Dick Snyder, who is our, our former bishop, is that every time that man got up, every time he mentioned the name Jesus, he started crying. Every time he said Jesus, his eyes just filled with water. He was a man who was captivated with Jesus. And if we want to be free of restraint, if we want to be free of fear, if we want to be free of the fear of people, then we need to be captivated with Jesus. I wonder this morning what you're captivated with. And I know it's a loaded question because this is the very first weekend of college football. And I know that some of you are captivated with college football. And that's okay. It's just fine to, to love your team. It's fine to root for your team. But let me ask you this. Is there not something that has a greater hold on your heart than a football team? Is there not something that has a greater hold on your heart than what other people think? What other people may uh, assume about you as a person? That's the secret to living unrestrained for Jesus. Being captivated with him. Secondly, we're told that they had been with Jesus. I love verse 13 of chapter 4. I read the first part of it a minute ago, but let me read the rest of it for you. When they saw the courage, some, some translations actually use the word boldness there. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, catch this last part, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Can I just tell you, I don't know that there's any greater compliment that a person could ever receive. It's for somebody to say, that guy has been with Jesus, or that woman has been with Jesus. Yeah, there, there's something, there was something about them that just reflected the nature and the, the presence of Jesus Christ. I mean, I, I think part of it probably is uh, that they were unschooled and untrained and yet filled with boldness and authority. Because if you will remember, they said exactly the same thing about Jesus. You remember in John 7 when uh, the, the, the religious leaders were astounded at Jesus' teaching? This is what they said. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? You see, Jesus never sat under one of the great uh, teachers of Israel. Jesus never went through the formal training that most priests went through. And yet when Jesus stood up and began to preach, people said he spoke with an authority like no one they had ever heard. And now they're saying the same things about his followers. Peter and John stand up and they say, hey, these, these guys are from the hills. These guys are from Galilee. They can hardly speak, much less read and they're standing up here speaking with boldness and authority. What in the world is going on? And someone says they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. And I think it was more than just the fact that they stood up and preached with authority. I think it's because they lived like Jesus lived. 
They lived like Jesus lived. They loved like Jesus. They healed like Jesus. They spoke the truth like Jesus, even when it wasn't popular to the establishment. And if you keep reading through the rest of the book of Acts, you're going to see that they gave like Jesus. They served like Jesus. They reached out to the broken and the despised like Jesus. Just as Jesus told them they would have to do, they took up their cross like Jesus and they laid down their lives like Jesus. They lived like Jesus because now Jesus was living in them. And that made all the difference in the world. It particularly, I mean, people saw this and they were, they were astounded at the boldness and authority of these men, especially those who knew who they were and from where they had come. Because they said, there is nothing about these men that makes them extraordinary. These are ordinary, everyday men, and yet look what God is doing through them. The third thing that we see here is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I am completely convinced that that is the key to the whole section. Luke makes absolutely sure that we don't, just, uh, that we don't miss this insight because he says it straight out in Acts 4.8. He says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up and began to speak to them. Why would he throw that little thing in there? Well, that one little phrase, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, because he wanted us to know, even today, He wanted us to know that it wasn't something within Peter other than the very presence of Jesus Christ living in him and working through him. That was the secret of their boldness. This is exactly what Jesus had said would happen. Jesus said that in, in John 14, 15, and 16. In John 14, he says, greater things you will do because I'm going back to the Father. Uh, In in chapter 16, he says, uh, tell you the truth, it is for your good that I go to the Father, that I go away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you and he will be in you. That promise is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And now the disciples are filled with God's Spirit. And it is because they are filled with His Spirit that their whole lives were turned upside down and they are now ready to lay their lives down for Christ every day in whatever way the Lord calls them to do it. You know, I've been reading as a part of my daily devotions in the Old Testament and I've been in 1 Samuel recently um, and I saw something in the anointing story of David, the story of when David was anointed by Samuel that I've never really noticed before. And I think it's because I'm reading that while I'm also immersed in the early chapters of the book of Acts. But, but let me remind you of exactly what the Scripture says in 1 Samuel 13. I want to read it first from the New International. I started reading this from multiple versions because they were all a little bit different. And uh, every one of them kind of spoke something new. Listen to what it says in verse 13. This is from the NIV. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. The Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Um, In the ESV, it, it puts it this way. 
Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Now listen to how Peterson paraphrases it in the message. Samuel took the flask of oil and anointed him with his brothers standing around watching. The Spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind, vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. Does that sound like anything else you've heard? It sounds a lot like Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit was poured out and there was a sound like the rushing wind. And the power of God fell on the disciples. I want you to see that David had the same experience. Now let me say this. Sometimes people have this idea that the Holy Spirit wasn't born until Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has been a part of the Trinity from the very beginning, right? The Holy Spirit was present in Genesis 1-1 when we are told that the earth was without form and void and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over it, right? So the Holy Spirit has been here from the very beginning. But it is true that in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was not poured out into individuals except in relatively rare cases where God raised up a man or a woman to do his work for a specific purpose. And so what we see are these moments where the Spirit of God is moving in the the lives of men or women doing God's purposes. But then Joel, the prophet, comes along and he says, one day, one day, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. All men and women will receive His Spirit. Uh, all, who, all who receive Christ will receive His Spirit. All, the, all men and women will prophesy in His name, right? Well, Pentecost is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. Now, why is that important? Because you see, you think about the person David. He's anointed with oil in chapter 16. Guess what happens in chapter 17? He faces Goliath, the giant. Do you remember the story? David is still at home. His other brothers are in the army. They're out there. The army of Israel is shaking in their boots with fear because of the giant Goliath and the Philistine army. David comes up to bring his brothers some bread and cheese and just to bless them. And, And he gets there and he suddenly sees that Goliath is mocking God. And the people of Israel are just huddled in a mass, scared to death. And he says, is there no one that will go out and fight this giant? Is there no one who will stand up to this man who's mocking our God? Now, this is a fascinating story. I mean, everybody's heard the story of David and Goliath. But I remember a few years ago seeing something in that passage that really stood out to me. When you think about the story of David and Goliath, there are three essential characters one of them is not a person but an army. There's Goliath, there's the Israel, the, the army, there, well, there's Saul and his army, and then there's David. Now, I want you to think about those three characters in that story. Goliath's eyes are on himself. Goliath stands for the pride of man. In his own eyes, Goliath is, is as good as it gets. In his own eyes, Goliath is completely invincible. He is strong. He is the epitome of humanity. He is everything every man would dream of being. In his eyes, he is invincible. But you know what? He has no idea that he is one small stone rightly placed from total destruction. 
And I want to tell you that when people live and make their foundation the pride of man, they are standing on exactly the same foundation. One small stone rightly placed and the whole thing comes falling down. One word from a doctor. One hurricane Harvey. One tragic accident. One stupid decision. One bad investment. One moment of compromise. And the whole thing comes crashing down. That's the story of Goliath. And unfortunately, that is the story of many people who stand in the, in the way of Goliath and look only to themselves or to this world for security and for guidance. And then there's the people of Israel, the, the army of Israel. They're there to fight for the Lord God. But all they can see is Goliath. And in their eyes, what Goliath represents are overwhelming consequences. Uh, overwhelming, an overwhelming situation that you simply can't see beyond. Something that completely overcomes you, overwhelms you, and leaves you hopeless and without any hope of, uh, of victory or any hope of breakthrough. Uh, their eyes are so consumed with Goliath that they have forgotten completely the Lord their God. And then there comes this shepherd boy. And he comes in. And with nothing but the Spirit of the Lord in him and a slingshot and five stones, walks out, faces the giant, and slays him for the people of Israel. But here's the thing. Too many times we hear that story and we think, man, David was an extraordinary man. David was an extraordinary man. Can I remind you who he really was? When, when Samuel came to the house of Jesse and said, I've come to anoint one of your sons. He didn't even tell him what he was anointing for, but he said, I've come to anoint one of your sons. That means God wants to do something really special with one of your sons. Jesse proceeds to parade out seven of his sons. And even Samuel is impressed with the way they look. Several times Samuel's thinking, oh, this must be the one. And he, he starts to anoint him and the Lord says, no, this is not the one. This is not the one. He goes through all seven, and Samuel says, is, is this all? He says, well, there's one more, but I mean, it couldn't possibly be him. This is how extraordinary David was. His own father didn't even bother to call him in from the fields while he was tending sheep. He's like, if God's going to do something through one of my sons, it can't be David. It could be any of the others, but not David. Samuel said, bring in the, bring in the, the little one. Bring in David. David comes in, and God gives Samuel eyes to see. And Samuel sees he's the one. He was as ordinary as they come. But then he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it transformed his entire life for the rest of his life. you, You have to know today, beloved, you have to know that we are on this side of Pentecost. If you have confessed and repented of your sins, if you've acknowledged in your own life that I am not the God of this universe, I'm not even the God of my own life, if you have professed Jesus Christ as Lord, 
and you've determined to let him rule your life, I want you to know that you have the very same spirit living in you that lived in David and Peter and John. Amen? That's the story of Acts 3 and 4. It's not the story of extraordinary men. It's a story of very ordinary people through whom God did extraordinary things because they yielded and submitted to the fullness and the power of His Holy Spirit. I want to just ask you today, um, some of you may be here today and some of you may be realizing that you've never made that decision. You've never, you have been building your your life on the foundation of something other than God. And maybe you've even come feeling pretty invincible. I want to tell you that one small stone rightly placed and the whole thing can collapse in a moment. If you're looking for security, if you're looking for truth, if you're looking for life that's truly life, as Peter said, there's only one name in heaven and earth. His name is Jesus. I want to ask you this morning to come up here, and and let me ask the prayer team to go ahead and make your way up. I want you to come to one of these people that are standing here and just come and say, I I need to be saved today. I need to ask the Lord into my heart. Let me say that some of you are already saved, and here's the truth. The Word of God says in Acts 2.38 that if you have, have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you have received the gift of His Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in you, whether you understand it or not. Whether there were fireworks involved or not. Whether you understood it or not. The Holy Spirit lives in you. But I want you to know that just like, we'll come to this later in the book of Acts. But there were a lot of people in the book of Acts who got saved and didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. And they, 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 they said, please, baptize us in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not about getting more of Him. Really, being baptized in the Spirit is very simply about saying, Lord, I want you to have all of me. I'm not holding anything back. I'm not keeping anything from me. I want to be rid of me so that I can be full of your Spirit. And if you're here this morning and you know that you're, you're lacking boldness, you're lacking confidence, you're lacking authority, you're lacking the very things that we've been talking about this morning, I want to encourage you to come and ask one of these people to pray. And just, Scripture is very simple. It just says, ask the Lord. Ask the Father. He's a good Father. If you ask the Father for a fish, He's not going to give you a snake. Ask Him for His Holy Spirit. And He will pour out His Spirit in your life today. Some of you may be like the Israeli army. And you're facing circumstances right now that have completely overwhelmed you. you your eyes are not on Jesus. Your eyes, are not, uh, your eyes have gotten completely distracted by the circumstances that you're currently in. I want you to know that he's here. He will step into that place with you. He will fill you with his spirit. And he will give you everything you need to deal with that circumstance, whatever it is. We're going to start this morning just uh, with, with response time, asking you all to stand. We're going to just sing a, a worship song. 
And if you just want to stand and worship, that's fine. Feel free to do that. But if you want someone to pray with you, come to one of these who are up front. Ask them to pray for you right now. If you just need to come and kneel at the altar and want to spend some time here praying, that's fine. But let's respond as the Lord leads us to respond. He's here. And he's ready to meet you right where you are.